Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, we still don't know who the next president of the United States will be, and it appears the outcome will remain uncertain as ballot counters in battleground states continue to work through the millions of uncounted votes. Meanwhile, Americans on opposing sides are issuing opposing clarion calls from the street, demanding that every vote be counted or that the vote counting stop entirely. President Trump is suing states with slim margins and has demanded a recount in Wisconsin. Americans wait as the world watches. When will we know for sure who the winner is? It's a full hour of insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Aaron. Hey, good to be here. I'm glad to have you. Luis Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Welcome back, Luis. Hello. Always a pleasure. And Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Hello, Gerald. Hi. Happy to be with you. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Let's be transparent. This is a fluid situation. It's been several days and we still uh, don't have an answer yet. Pennsylvania, particularly with its 20 electoral votes, everybody's watching and there's a lot of consternation about it. At this point, former Vice President Joe Biden has the lead, but there is still a narrow but possible pathway to victory for the president. And I thought, uh, since you all were a political scientist, you would appreciate this quote I found. It's not the people who vote that count. It's the people who count the vote. Um, that's from Joseph Stalin. <laughs> you may remember him as a Russian dictator. And I just couldn't believe that that was his quote, but it seemed appropriate uh, for this moment. Anyway, let's get started with and looking at what we do know and can talk about in, if, as we've seen some of the trends. Let me start this way. The pollsters, wrong again. You know, last go round, they said, no, we were actually were right. Uh, Secretary Clinton got the three million popular vote, as we predicted. But everything else, as we recall, was off. Um, and again, this time, same thing. And it seems the same error. I want to get your responses to that before we delve into some more specifics. Gerald? The, the issue, obviously, it appears to be that they got Red states, particularly, uh, were very, were very wrong. There's a there's a polling error. Clearly, uh, we don't know what it is yet. Although we've already heard people talking about what we call non-response error, which is or bias, which is to say that uh, they underestimated the degree to which Trump supporters would not 
answer the phone or answer surveys. So that's so far that's the only kind of methodological uh, excuse I've heard. Um, otherwise, I think we really have to wait because when we initially uh, were hearing it was all wrong, of course, it looked like uh, Trump was on his way to victory. Obviously, the picture is changing quite a bit, and it will change. And, and I suspect that the sins of the pollsters won't look quite as dramatic when it's all said and done, though there, there's clearly error here that they're going to have to look at. Louise. Yes, that's exactly right. I, I completely agree um, with Gerald, because nationally, it looks like it's going to be pretty close. And at the state level, it's not as bad as it looked just even a few hours ago. But I think one of the reasons why that's the case is uh, two reasons. One, the Latino electorate in particular did not behave the way that they had been behaving in previous elections. Why that is, we still don't know. But if the Latino electorate had behaved exactly the same as before, I think that the state margins would have been much closer to what we would expect. And also, there seems to be a uh, educational uh, polarization that happens also with rural and urban areas that is also very hard to capture. Uh, that might or might not be a non-response issue. I, I don't know if it's a, it's only a non-response. I think it's also that more people that were not supposed to uh, come vote, that is that you got voters that they didn't expect would come out to vote. Mm -hmm. Aaron. I think this is a fundamental challenge for polling. Um, I, I'm, I, I adore my colleagues, but I'm not as confident in the polls. I, I think this is a, a, a more dire indictment. Um, you get a pass, and I think the explanation that everybody went through for 16 is 100% correct. But 2020 is two major cycles in a row, row where the polls are off, and they're off in one direction, often substantially. The state polls did not perform well at all. Biden is not winning Pennsylvania by 9, 10 points. Um, and so I think there, you know, you've got a legitimacy issue. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the way in which the polls themselves have been politicized. You've had President Trump for the last five years, including his campaign, uh, first campaign, say, you know, don't trust the polls. You can't trust the pollsters. Uh, going on attack at Fox News pollsters, saying that you guys are particularly bad at this. What that means is that some um, very strong Trump supporters will not talk to pollsters. It's not that they're lying. It's that they're non, not participating. Polling assumes that everyone um, has an equal shot of being selected, even though that, that, that rate is very, very low. Polling also assumes that there is not a partisan split on willingness to talk. Most of us say no to pollsters, but it never before has it been uh, a partisan split. And I think that's what's happening. So I'm very interested to see, is this a legacy effect? Will this mean that um, ardent Trump supporters won't talk to pollsters forever? Uh, it's interesting to me that in 2018, the polls were quite effective when the name Trump wasn't on there. But, um, you know, uh, literally millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars were spent on polls that were bad and could have been spent on other races, candidates or, or even a nonprofit. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I think this is polling is partly an art. And this is a tough problem to correct if people won't talk to you. If you think about who, in an overwhelming sense, would answer a poll, those are people who are college-educated and reachable um, and willing. Uh, so that, in and of itself, leaves out masses of people who are, you know, not answering and not reachable. 
But then why don't we see it in 2018? You know, the, the anomaly has been the presidential election when Trump on the ballot. So many of our other polls for uh, have been correct. So mm-hmm. th- that, that's the rub. The, the, the issue you brought up is constant. It could be a turnout issue. In 2018, there was good turnout, but there wasn't this turnout. In other words, the, the electorate has expanded in both directions. So a lot of this could be that they 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 calculated the turnout wrong. But, you know, I, I, I researched that. Brian Schaffner, who's at Tufts, right before the election, he said when he adjusted for turnout that uh, it was only in Texas where there were major effects on the polls. So the, at least that good pollster did those adjustments and thought his poll was still robust and it wasn't. Hmm. I, I just wonder if the survey sizes are just too small. That's 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 where I leave. And I have no um, scientific anything, as we were clear about. So that's just my my musing. All right. Let's go. Let's uh, dig a little deeper. Luis, let's uh, jump right in. Um, you spend a lot of time looking at the stats of uh, the Latino various populations. So I'll let you weigh in because you are, after all, the expert. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, okay, so, so a few things. Um, you know, people that study the Latino electorate or people that study Latinos in general often get very annoyed and say things like, we're not a monolith and people that assume that we are, uh, you know, it's insulting and so on and so forth. Uh, but even if we take into groups, it wasn't even looking into groups, people did not behave in a way that is very easy to explain. So the Cubans in Florida, which is, yeah, it's expected that they tend to be more Republican, but it was not just Cubans. I want to emphasize that for everyone that's listening. It was not just Cubans. It was Colombians. It was Puerto Ricans. It was basically all the Latino groups, the different Latino groups that live in Miami-Dade. Uh, so it was not concentrated on just Cubans, uh, Venezuelans too. And also, even in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, which, you know, we don't expect, there's not actually very few Cubans, uh, the president gained in places like Revere, in Chelsea, uh, New Bedford, places that have a lot of Latinos. And the Latinos in Massachusetts are Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, right? So people that are not, um, that mm-hmm. tend to vote for Democrats more. Um, and then also the same group behaved differently in different places. So, for instance, in Texas, Mexican-Americans in Texas around the Rio Grande behaved um, differently than Mexican-Americans in Dallas and also in Arizona. Uh, also, Mexican-Americans in New Mexico uh, tend to behave uh, or voted more for Trump. But I, I shouldn't say voted for more for Trump, but Trump gained uh, with them at the margins. And so... It's, it's a very complicated situation. And at least I don't, we don't know exactly what's happening, but at least the theory that I have right now is that the Latino electorate seems to be bifurcating similarly to the rest of the electorate on education um, mm-hmm. and also rural polarization. Um, so there's of course other ideological issues like with Cubans who have always been Republican uh, or more Republican than the rest of the electorate. But the rural areas in Texas, uh, lack of education uh, and things like that, they, they are behaving basically very similar to other rural areas in the rest of the country. One thing that I am um, very optimistic about, I think that the Latino electorate really made a splash on Tuesday night because everyone um, realized just how important they are. And we are still talking about it. Uh, and we'll be talking about it for quite some time. So on that, I, I'm very happy about Yes, on this program, we have been talking for a long time about both 
black voters and Latino voters not being uh, monoliths and, you know, people just go, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But, you know, the evidence of it uh, is not often uh, often seen. I want to ask you about the micro-targeting. President Trump did both a ground game and extreme ethnic micro-targeting in Florida. In Arizona, there was a deep, deep, long-term mobilization effort among young Latinos. And this is a generational divide, in addition to many other things that you've mentioned. By the way, we should mention that the majority of folks under the umbrella of Latino voted for Vice President Joe Biden. Um, So let's just be clear about this. So we're talking about um, percentages, but they make the difference, as we have seen in Florida. So uh, there was a generational thing with a lot of young Latino activists Not only is the, quote unquote, Latino demographic group the largest uh, so far, second only to white people in terms of voters, but just wanted you to respond to that. Well, see, this is the same kind of effect that I think is happening with the rest of the electorate. As we know, in terms of Facebook access, uh, in terms of misinformation or in terms of ads that target uh, particular a sense of, of belonging and also economic uh, messages that uh, the president had been trying to uh, send out, uh, younger people are just not, um, they're not very likely to, to, uh, to accept those messages, right? They're not likely to be moved by those messages, just in general, I mean, in the electorate as a whole. So Latinos seem to be behaving in the same way because the older they were, especially Cubans in Florida, um, they were targeted, but the younger you were, the less likely that you were uh, likely to to mobilize on that. All right. So, Aaron. Well, you know, actually, I was listening and I was struck by how much more I learned, quite frankly, from what uh, Luis just said and what a nuanced response that was compared to the um, hypothesis that is most popular and that at least that I've read in popular media, that some of this has to do with uh, machismo, that Donald mm-hmm. Trump gives off a certain machismo. And if it's okay, like I'm interested in Luis's reaction to that because mm. he's providing a lot more nuance than I think we're getting. We know it's not a monolith, but the explanations have been lacking in my mind. And that's the one that sort of, I don't know, caught steam. And mm. I can't tell if it's offensive or if there's some truth there. So I'm genuinely curious to Louise's take. Okay, Louise. I do know individuals myself specifically that are very attracted to this sort of toxic masculinity uh, that are Latino, right? But uh, what does that mean in terms of the larger numbers? Um, I don't think that that's the most likely explanation, mm-hmm. um, but there's no doubt that there are some individuals. The issue is, how much do those, you know, maybe small margins or how big of a margin that is? My sense is that it's not, that is not the main explanation, but it could have made a difference in, you know, very tight races for some individuals. Gerald, uh, the economy was at the top of the list for a lot of, again, people under the Latino umbrella, um, where some may have thought that immigration was the sole driving factor. Uh, the, yeah, obviously, economic concerns are a concern for lots of Americans of various you know, demographic situations. I would be interested to really sit down and compare very specifically the, the uh, micro-targeting of both campaigns, because obviously both campaigns attempted to micro-target. And so I think we might learn a lot simply by sitting down and really pouring over not the returns, but rather the actual micro-targeting appeals. Uh, Let me move on and pick up a thread about toxic masculinity and the margins, as Louise has pointed out, with black men. 
um, which got a lot of attention, much to the consternation and upset of many people who know that, as you've seen now, as the numbers have come out, it's still fluid. Um, the majority of black men voters voted for Vice President Joe Biden. But there was quite a vocal small group of black men who said, hey, uh, we're moving over to President Trump. We don't see a difference between either of them. So what the hell? Might as well vote for President Trump. Or uh, we think the Democrats have taken us for granted. Or third, we like how uh, the swagger of President Trump, who, by the way, for people who are not do not know this culturally, before he was president, President Trump, Donald Trump, you know, as businessman, as he perceived, as he projected himself, was very popular in rappers' songs. Very popular. So I would like to get some response. I'll start with you, Luis. <laughs> you gave me a hard one because I, because I think that, uh, yes, you see it in the media. I mean, there were, there were prominent uh, black uh, celebrities and others who spoke in favor of Trump, like, uh, of course, Kanye West and then um, Ice Cube and a bunch of other rappers that uh, spoke favorably of him. And so you mentioned that there were small margin, but how much should we make of that? Um, I, I think that probably at any election, there's always these small margins that can change for any number of reasons. But should we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, these tiny margins? I don't know. Um, well, Gerald, I will say that Kanye West got 60,000 votes. He was on the ballot himself in many states. And I just want to let you think about that as you respond. I, I want to catch, uh, pick up on something Lewis was implying there. We, I think we overburden uh, segments of the electorate analytically. Uh, you know, the mm. average person of every race, creed, and color voted for non-rational reasons. We have to keep remembering that, right? The average voter does not go in with a policy agenda. Right. They go in mm. and they are voting their social identity in some respect. But the, the reality is we're asking a black man and Hispanic this. We're saying, well, 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 we're expecting that they went in there understanding policy. And that's not fair. Why should they have to understand policy any more than anybody else? The fact, uh, you, Although you could say they're or more care about it, to your point. Yeah. Well, or yeah, care yeah. about yeah. it. Right. And so I think we yeah, have an expanded yeah. electorate here. I think we have a lot of people who were not voters before this. And how can you expect those people to all be, I know I need to vote because of a policy? Or isn't it more probable that they just know it's voting is something I think I'll do this time, but they don't know exactly what's going on. And therefore, it's almost a random you know, variable rather than something we should be drilling it down on so, so closely. Mm. Um, Aaron. I mean, I'd like to build on what Gerald said. I, I, I don't think the overburdening is so much on policy, though. You know, that's a fine argument. Uh, uh, but I think it's the overburdening of um, who we, who gets focused on after the election, and whose vote is, is assumed to be, um, you know, owned or counted on. And you know, it's interesting to me. You know, uh, Latinos. Um, and African-Americans seem to have gone a little bit more, and you, you were careful, and both African-American men um, seem to have gone a little bit more for Donald Trump. Well, you know, the majority of white people did again, <laughs> and more of them did too. So I, I, th that's the sort of like overburdening part. Um, so hard stop there. But then on the second part, it is the case that Donald Trump did better with communities of color than any Republican in um, decades. 
Yeah, that's not saying much. We need to say that's the mar- that's marginal, but but you're right, right? See, both things are going on. You know, and I guess the third thing is, you know, we're basing this um, a weekish out, and the ex- we just talked about how bad the polls are. Exit polls are notoriously bad. Yeah. Um, so it, I'd be a little careful to jump into this too much, even though I'm dying to, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, be- because we don't have the good numbers yet. Yeah, I wanted to add something. So I think part of the reason mm-hmm. why. Uh, we overburden these sectors uh, of the electorate uh, is in part because uh, the educated people, the people that follow politics very closely that are listening to us, I'm sure probably think, well, but given what we know about President Trump, about all of his, in particular with Latinos, I can speak for sure, about his anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, what happened with COVID, everything else that burdened those communities, shouldn't we expect these individuals to respond um, logically to those to that situation. And I would say, let me just say, speak specifically about the Latino electorate. With Latinos, the, the communities that voted for him, um, where he expanded, is because, in large part, they did not think of themselves as immigrants. So when he, when, you know, Trump is doing all of these anti-immigrant, all these anti-immigrant rhetoric and, and doing anti-immigrant policy, the individuals like, Texan, like Texans in um, Mexican-Americans in Texas, those individuals do not think of themselves as immigrants. They're Americans, just like anybody mm-hmm. else. And also the same thing with uh, Latinos in Florida, Cubans and, and others. And so I think, you know, it's, it, they're not following, they're not under the same assumptions that we maybe mm-hmm. give them. It's identity. Mm-hmm. Everybody's voting their identity and their identity isn't what we want to think it is. Exactly. Right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. We're discussing the 2020 presidential election as well as nationwide and local races. Um, I just want to put one button on that that conversation, and that is on the other side uh, from the perspective of, of Joe Biden. If Joe Biden, with these very, very tight races, is eventually victorious, he will have to thank brown and black voters because they made up that margin. That is it. So that's that's a reality as well. We can then go back and ask them why, but that is also the case. Stacey Abrams. She comes out of this if Georgia goes the way it's looking right now. Stacey Abrams can write her ticket in Democratic circles for uh, the rest of her life. Yes, that's true. I wanted to emphasize, too, a group that doesn't usually get talked about, which is Native Americans. They were crucial in Arizona in particular. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he, he has to thank them for that. That's exactly right. All right. Let me move to the youth vote. You know, listen, I've talked about him. I've, you know, I've said, you guys got to step up. What is the problem? Well, they stepped up, you know, so far. This is what, and we have really good information from Tufts, the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement Circle. They have been following the young people's before the election all the way through, sort of testing them. And all of that information indicated early on that this time young people were going to go to the polls in big numbers. Okay, we heard that before. Well, they did. Uh, So in Pennsylvania, young people made up 14 percent of the vote and supported Biden by plus 23. In Michigan, young people made up 15 percent of the vote and supported Biden by plus 29. In North Carolina, young people made up 16 percent of the vote and supported Biden by plus 16. Georgia, 
uh, young people made up 21 percent of the vote and supported Biden by plus 15. Wisconsin youth made up 14 percent of the vote and supported Biden by plus 27. And in Arizona, the youth made up 17 percent of the vote and supported Biden by plus 28. So that's an impact, Gerald. Yes, it, it absolutely is. The obvious impact was it was very important. Another important segment of the of the electorate for uh, the vice president, right? Uh, so another group that he has to thank. And that's fine. But how does that translate into uh, a political agenda is really what I'm, I'm most interested in. As I sit at a state university in dire uh, financial straits in a state that the first place they go for cuts is the state university system. So it'll be to me, it'll be interesting to see if they, this can translate uh, at the state level. Wisconsin has a huge you know, issue in this respect with regard to state university funding. Will it translate to the new uh, to the new administration, to the new elected officials around the country? That's really what I'm uh, interested in in that respect. Okay. Uh, Luis? I mean, I was just so uh, happy, both, as I mentioned, with the Latino electorate, but the youth electorate is the other one. Um, the reason why I'm so optimistic is because we know from the literature that once people vote once, uh, they're more likely to vote in the future. They become habitual voters. And so having this huge turnout with the youth, I think, is going to have a dramatic impact going forward. We don't know exactly what that's going to be yet, but I think more people voting is always a good thing. This was this was record turnout. I believe in the latest numbers I saw were over a century, which is fantastic. And so the issue then is going to be, how is this going to be going forward if it's just a blip, if it's a Trump effect of some kind? or if we're going to be able to sustain this going forward. Um, I'm optimistic about the latter. Um, Aaron, two things. When we say young people in this context, uh, we mean 18 to 29-year-olds. Um, and also in that, under the umbrella of young people, a lot of young people of color. So that's you know, some overlap there with the margins from black and, and brown voters offered to uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a diverse group as, as well. Um, what I want to know is, did the increases in youth vote overperform increases in other age groups? Uh, it, it's been the case, at least in 16, for a long time, that the 18 to 29 group gets um, uh, people over 70 overperform <laughs> uh, by upwards of 20 points. They're much more likely to vote. I want to know if um, uh, th that gap got cut into in this election. Is it that um, youth vote went up at the same percentage that all, the, all age categories went up? Or is it that um, youth went up more and cut into those age gaps over time? Because I think that's good news for Democrats. The, the higher the vote share compared to those older groups is what's going to have the most um, electoral effect. Is it that we count on the youth at the, the end, or is that, um, you know, the next campaign knows that they have to really cater uh, to young voters? Well, I would say two things. First of all, there's a lot of young people actually running for office. So I think that that was uh, that we need to look to that because I, that may have had something to do with, um, you know, inspiring more young people to vote because they see themselves. Uh, also, the millennials are a bigger group. Uh, demographically than the baby boomers now. So that, to your point, would be will be very interesting to see. So if anybody has the power, they actually have it. Um, we'll see how they choose to use it. But right now, they're making a marginal difference for Vice President Joe Biden. 
Yeah, uh, well, actually, I was going to say one thing is that we make it uh, really hard to vote for everybody, and it disproportionately affects young people. Young people are more mobile. They have to register. They're less likely to have the time, um, resources, and civic skills because they're in school or they're working, and they're working, you know, just by a function of age, um, you know, lower on the totem pole jobs that don't have the same kind of flexibility. So, you know, it, their hill is um, uh, their hill is higher. That said, though, I don't expect young people um, are much more likely to vote dissatisfaction with the two-party system. Um, and yes, the margins were really good for Biden that you reported, but I think part of the reason it didn't carry on uh, a down ballot to the same degree is because um, they really dislike Donald Trump. It's not that they're in love with Democrats. Uh, global climate change, those kind of issues they find both parties wanting on. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to raise two more issues and put a button on this. One, uh COVID-19 forced a lot of people inside. There was a lot of mobilization among young people. I want to see how that paid off in ways that I think was much higher than before. Um, we know, all of us to, on this conversation know that young people respond to a call to action. They were called to action to be poll workers because the older poll workers were not going in because of COVID-19. They were called to action as organizers, uh, again, for those same reasons. So I'm very interested to see and responding to the call to action, as Louise has said, now they've gotten involved and engaged at uh, many different levels and they have voted. It, you know, where's the let's see how they use their power on that note. We're going to take a break and uh, come back. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Kelly Crossley. I'm Kelly Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our 2020 election discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. Let's jump back into the conversation. I want to start with the Lincoln Project. A um, lot of money for this project, which a group of disaffected uh, Republicans, some of them quite prominent, who are very... Um, uh, unhappy with uh, not only just unhappy with President Trump, but but feel as though that he is an existential threat to democracy and uh, also that he's, you know, pretty much rendered their party uh, in two. So first, let's listen to this ad from the Lincoln Project criticizing President Donald Trump. Donald Trump's desperate campaign is in trouble and they want to manipulate this election to save the president. Close polling places, ignore military votes, throw out mail-in ballots, and intimidate voters. I am urging them to do it. Trump and his loyalists are fine cheating. They don't care if it's illegal. So one of the backers of the Lincoln Project and um, a member of this sort of other group of, of disaffected Republicans, quite prominent, who came out uh, for Vice President uh, Joe Biden. I think people have heard about uh, former Governor John Kasich, but here's former RNC Chairman Michael Steele uh, giving his endorsement to Joe Biden. For four years, many have said there will come a moment. Well, this is the moment. 
because this ballot is like none ever cast. Now I'm a lifelong Republican and I'm still a Republican, but this ballot is how we restore the soul of our nation, electing a good man, Joe Biden, and a trailblazer, Kamala Harris, and ensure an orderly transfer of power, or plunge our country into chaos. America or Trump? I choose America. And one last piece of sound I'd love you to listen to. This is Jennifer Horn. She's a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, speaking to Boston Public Radio, that's a GBH program, about why she and other conservatives feel the need to oust President Trump from the White House. Uh, and our mission was to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism, meaning that it's not enough just to get Donald Trump out of the White House. We need to defeat all of those people, uh, whether they're in elected office or otherwise, who empowered him, enabled him, lifted him up, defended him, protected him, did not vote to impeach him when the evidence was overwhelming. So that is that is the, mo the mission. That is the goal. So I'm curious uh, from uh, your perspective about the level of influence that uh, these prominent voices who've long uh, been Republicans um, and prominent ones um, had on uh, this campaign. I'll start with you, uh, Gerald. Uh, that's a that's a really good question. Obviously, we'll, we'll wait to get more numbers in the bigger picture. But if you look at the result, it's very tempting to say that the election was won by, you know, sort of. The Lincoln Project, because if the if it holds that the Republicans did extremely well and overperformed in congressional races and in state legislative races, then you have to at least superficially it looks like their message of it's not conservatism in the Republican Party that's the problem. It's a this sort of this uh, influence on or this takeover by uh, Trump and Trumpism. And so if Trump loses, then they it, it looks in the big picture like wow they used a scalpel and they were able to convince people to separate the president from the party. And if that turns out to be backed up by data in terms of who voted and why, then you'd have to be very impressed with the effort. That is exactly right because. The the um, there's several places in Wisconsin, New Hampshire, uh, and many others where Republicans voted for Biden at a significant number, but did not vote for the governor or you know other down ballot races, which shows that there were many people that split their tickets. I think this is upsetting for a lot of people, especially Democratic activists who have been fighting uh, for a long time. Of course, have been Democrats for a long time, and so. The fact that they basically we get the best possible result for the Lincoln Project, which is right. uh, President uh, Biden and a Republican Senate and, and Republican legislatures, um, that is very upsetting, right? But if the issue was to get rid of Trump, then obviously that's what you wanted to to do first. Hmm. Aaron. There's no reason to suspect um, that the Lincoln Project was the causal factor that of why people voted um, to get Trump out and then returned to home with the Republican Party. But I do think the Lincoln Project had some influence, um, and I think most of it is uh, discourse. Uh, the number of videos that they put forward that got shared, they bolstered a lot of Democrats. They made people, I, I think they actually bolstered turnout amongst Democrats. Um, and I think some independents gave them, you know, permission, reminded them of the things they don't like about Trump. So, you know, it's, it, it's just tough to causally isolate 
if it was the final factor on voting. But I think having those ads, like the ones you ran, they were effective. Having those out there, having them, you know, shared a bajillion times on Facebook and then seeing it's Steve Schmidt and all these other prominent Republicans behind it, I think that had an effect just in terms of conversation. Um, and, you know, the Facebook wars we all talk about, um, and the Lincoln Project went right into that um, um, that arena. Um, so I want to just pick up, uh, move to another topic, but pick up uh, something that Jennifer Horan, who's the co-founder of the Lincoln Project, said. So we're looking at uh, a Senate uh, that is still in flux because there are two potentially, at least one runoff in Georgia for sure, and another one between uh, Senator David Perdue and uh John Ossoff, which may or may not come to fruition. At, at last uh, information, uh, David Perdue was underneath 50, which is, uh, but barely, which is what has to happen if there is going to be a, a runoff. Nobody can be at 50. So we'll see if that holds. If it does hold, that's two runoffs and a possibility of the Democrats winning those Senate seats. Uh, so there is that. But I also want to point out that she said it's not just President Trump, it's Trumpism. So as far as they are concerned, their future effort beyond this election, whatever happens, is to go ferret out all of the people in the Senate uh, and elsewhere who have been nothing but proponents of Trumpism. And one of those cases was, of course, South Carolina with Lindsey Graham, who held on to a seat, uh, effectively beating uh, Jamie Harrison. The Lincoln Project wasn't particularly uh, effective down ballot, but but they called it out. You know, uh, uh, a lot of us, just as political observers, uh, are struck by the way Trumpism truly isn't ideological in the classic Republican way. So I don't want to be, like, down on them because I think they did something important. Um, it's a lot harder, though, I think, to ferret out Trumpism when you don't have Trump, right? Because it, it, it's not as uh, – love him or hate him, the man is overt. <laughs> There is no subtlety in Trump world, um, whereas a Lindsey Graham and some of these others can be more Trumpy. They can selectively put that costume on and off. You know, they always say the Democrats are in disarray. The Republicans are in a lot of disarray, even though they did find electorally. But if Donald Trump is missing at the top, who or what the Republican Party is is 100 percent up for grabs. And you've got elites who might want to return to, quote, unquote, normal. And you've got the base activated who never was a part of that normal. All right. Uh, Gerald. I'm interested, of course, the, the prog progressives have always looked at the uh, the never Trumpers or the or the uh, Lincoln Project folks with a little bit of suspicion. There's been sort of a you know discover. And frankly, I think that what's happened and their success, if that's what it is, is going to be more interesting to look at as we look at what I think will be a a, a very fractious Democratic Party here. They're trying to put the Republican Party back together. That's their goal. I think a, a collateral damage here might be that this is going to spark progressive and moderate Democratic, you know, infighting as soon as this election is over, because I think that the Lincoln Project appealed to the average voter of both parties. I don't think the average Democrat is who the progressive activist thinks she he or she is. And I think the Lincoln Project's focus, which I's as we've said here, is certainly not ideological. It's just sort of a, a an attack on a, uh, an, a, a 
something that's sort of doing damage to our culture. And so I, it, to me, it's interesting to see how this result, if we link it to the Lincoln Project, will fuel infighting in the Democratic Party. Luis. The thing that I'm really interested about, of course, people are always talking about Democrats in this array. I think part of the problem for the Democrats is that they have such an unwieldy coalition, people wanting very different things within the party. But what's going to be more interesting, at least to me, is what is Trumpism without Trump going to look like? What is that going to look like? And as of right now, as Aaron said, that's completely up for grabs. But just from my own intuition, from what I see in other parts of the world, in Latin America, which people have tried this many, many, many times, populist types that come out are very popular, they mobilize the electorate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When those people leave, it's, it never works. The coalitions just fracture completely. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious as to how that's going to uh, work in the U.S. because I just don't see how, unless maybe actually even, even the children of Trump they you know, could replace him like an Ivanka or something like that. Um, they're going to start infighting very soon. They're already infighting right now. Right. Uh, the, the children, uh, you know, Trump children are already demanding to know where the rest of the party is and why they're not defending uh, Trump. I think in the next, you know, we're talking about three months or uh, how many days, 70 days or something uh, where Trump is going to have power, but he's going to be a lame duck. Um, a person. And so the question, Potentially. Is, right. yeah, I mean, that's the projection. And so if that's, if that happens, then the question is um, how is the rest of the party going to react right now? It looks like they're moving on without him. I don't think he's going to move on though. I think he's going to try to continue from outside of the office to rule his fiefdom, right? He's going to continue to try to keep Trumpism alive. Of course he's going to, but is he going to be successful? The party right now, he hasn't even lost yet. And the parties or seems to be, already moving on without him. That's why I don't think that, that the Trumpism without Trump is going to succeed. Uh, but th- but I, of course, could be wrong. Yeah. Look at the court, uh, how the court uh, behaves. And if, if the court does the rational thing that, frankly, I expect them to do, and then I, I would say that we're that Lewis's uh, projection is probably the absolutely right one. But if the court makes decisions that surprise us, that would become alarming. Uh, Let me just uh, say this, though. And again, I'm not the political scientist, Um, but it would seem to me that the Trumpiest Trump people won um, in the Senate. There's even some people past Trump, the QAnon, there are two that got elected. Um, So getting rid of Trumpism, um, I I don't even if that's a goal of the Lincoln Project is not as simple as it seems. Now, I don't know what happens if, in fact, uh, these two seats or the other seats that are in play end up being favorable to the Democrats and they take over the Senate, which seems, you know, small, small possibility at this point. Do those Trumpian Trump people continue with Trumpism or do they moderate um, in that new situation? We have to be very careful. If if two people that believe in QAnon have been elected to Congress, it, the tendency is to say that reflects the party. Uh, that's a problem. We we talk about uh, the squad, right? The, the four uh, women that uh, were elected yes. in 2018. Okay. The, obviously, they're an exciting group of people that speaks to the, where maybe the party is going, but it's not where the party is. The party is not 
an AOC party. And I would have to say the Republican Party really isn't a, isn't a, a, a QAnon party, right? And I, whether that's where they're going, that's another question. But we don't want to overinterpret a couple of people because they're running in congressional districts, right? Homogenous you know, communities that are small. So I think the Democrats have made that mistake, right? That a lot of progressives look at the election of a couple of members of Congress and think this is, you know, this is proof that we, the party is is moving far to the left, but, but it really isn't. And that's what I was getting at when I talked about the Lincoln Project having an impact on the Democratic infighting. The perception of the average Democrat and the perception of the average Republican, those are perceptions that are, that are getting out of whack. Also, let me clarify. Yeah. I think this conversation really depends on what we mean by Trumpism. When I said that Trumpism mm. could you know, fail, I was, I was defining Trumpism as this toxic masculinity, anti-immigrant, brash populist movement, as opposed to if we define Trumpism as let's block everything that the Democrats want to do, then yes, McConnell and, and uh, Lindsey Graham and so on, yeah, that, will, that, that won't go away. But this, this Trumpism of uh, toxic masculinity, who's going to sustain that? I don't know that anybody has the, the skills to have the showmanship that, that Trump does that he was so good at mobilizing people. I don't know that somebody else can replace him um, in doing that. Mm, got it. All right. And that's why I like having a colleague who studies comparative politics, because I'm, I'm guessing a little bit. But, you know, I trust my colleague that, you know, in Latin American countries, when the figurehead is gone or the charismatic figurehead is gone, there's fracture. I, I, that said, you know, the, the Trumpism, the worst of Trumpism, not the obstructionism, but the other parts of Trumpism, it is out of the bottle. So I, I think they're going to be lacking a dear leader. Um, and uh, we will see more fracture, but I, I think all those things we just talked about will be important, bothersome in my normative view, but um, will be important elements that the Republican Party has to deal with. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. They embrace Trump. That means elements of Trumpism are not going to um, be done with him in 2020 or 2024, depending on how this goes. All right. So let me just point something else out that, I mean, this so far, we're just finding all kinds of interesting data that seems to be contradictory in terms of where the electric's <laughs> head was at. So let's go with this. COVID-19 is a major issue, uh, apparently, uh, in these in the early data. So there was a complete divide um, along pretty much along party lines of, of, you know, who thought it was important and, and then voted accordingly and who did not. And uh, the people that thought it was important on uh, former Vice President Joe Biden's side, people didn't think it was so important on President Trump's side. But here's some new data from NPR um, just released that in the many places hard hit by COVID-19, this is interesting, leaned more toward Trump in 2020 than even in 2016. What do you make of that? Denialism. Like, it, it, he's telling you, have 14 cookies and it'll be done. And the Democrats are telling you, you know, this is going to be a long slaw. you got to do diet and exercise. Um, th that's how I read that. If you've discredited the scientists, uh, you know, I'd rather <laughs> he's giving them sugar. Okay. Um, Gerald? Yeah, that, I I would just follow up on that. I I think that's exactly what I was thinking too, and and I I, I immediately think, you know, in 1984, Ronald Reagan said we we could lower your taxes and cure the deficit. He won 49 <laughs> states, 
right? So that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing when, when two people yeah. or two groups that you think are equally authoritative or not authoritative have totally opposite menus. Why not go with the group that's telling you you can have your cake and eat it too? And the other thing I want to point out, we know from the polls that uh, even throughout all of this, as the pandemic was uh, raging, people, the one thing where he led was uh, his economic, the management of the economy, right? Mm -hmm. How well he did with the economy. And so for those places that were uh, worse hit by COVID, I am sure that those individuals are very worried about the economy, are very worried about their future. And so it just naturally seems that if that's what you're concerned about and you already support, you already think that the president is going to do better, then you're going to vote for him. At least that's one element I would I would point to. All right. Then I want to talk about some other down ballot races that, again, seem, you know, the electorate uh, was really interesting. So for uh, in policy is hard. In uh, Rhode Island, uh, the first uh, gay woman has won uh, to the state Senate. Uh, that's her name is Tiara Mack. She's been elected to represent District 6 of Rhode Island in the state Senate. She's a alum of Brown University. So that's one thing. Um, a U.S. senator, the first trans state senator, has been elected. And the first black gay male has been elected. So Democrat Mondaire Jones is the black gay candidate for Congress. He's won. And uh, Sarah McBride. A former spokesperson for the LGBTQ advocacy group Human Rights Campaign, which is a national uh, program, uh, actually was a trainee in the White House during the Obama administration, and uh, she has won. Uh, so, very interesting. So, down ballot races, a lot of stuff was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's good news in there. Like, it, 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 there's it, for every QAnon supporter, or not supporter, for a candidate that won, you know, there there's something that I at least view more, much more positively. So, you know, America's becoming more diverse, and thankfully, um, our elected offices are, have a long way to go, but they are getting better. I mean, we even saw Republican women are, are, are got yes. eviscerated yes. in 2018 mm -hmm. and uh, uh, experienced some. Um, victories. I think that's good for the Republican Party. I think that's, um, you know, good for the U.S. as well as all the, the first you just mentioned. Sometimes, you know, it feels, anytime I read or hear one of those first, I, you know, I feel some pride. Mm. And I should say that uh, one of the highest ranking uh, Republican women, whose name escapes me now, said uh, they actually were inspired by the sweep of the Democratic women to sort of get in gear and get organized and mobilized to get more Republican women uh, in the Congress. So there is that as well, uh, more engagement. I teach women in politics and have had like the uh, former head of the mass GOP in who's female. And, you know, anecdotally, they, they were saying exactly that, that, you know, um, to see the, those Democratic successes felt a little bit embarrassing. And Republican women do legislate differently than Republican men at the margins. Um, but there's good research to show that. So for diversity in these institutions, that's a win. Well, that's absolutely true. And and let's not forget that time then. Um, all of the women in Congress, that was a few years back, uh, banded together. I'm trying to remember what the legislation was to say to their colleagues, uh-uh. <laughs> so I, and that was across party lines. So, you know, let's more to come, perhaps. All right, Gerald. And um, what do you think about this? 
Well, I think that the only one of the only things that the president said in the unhinged rant, uh, the latest unhinged rant that he uh, engaged in, was that the party seems to have uh, done a great job of reaching out to women and, and even in some case minorities. So there's no question that diversifying the Republican Party in that way is, is a positive, is a good thing. Anything that will uh, sort of bring nuance to the debate about what it means to be a Republican in this time is a good thing. So on that, in that respect, on that side, I think that's a good thing. In terms of the Democratic Party, obviously, it's always a good thing, too, when this, when the parties um, uh, becomes more diverse. But in this case, it's the implication is also more progressive on policy. And that also, if you're a progressive, is a, a good thing. But again, I have to say, right, we're talking, you know, when you're talking about races like state Senate races, you're talking about in, in a New England state, for example, you know, you don't want to read too much into that. Right. Well, well, Sarah McBride's victory was in Delaware, so that to, to be clear about that. And uh, Mondaire Jones is from New York, so you're probably right about that. Louise, what's your take? I completely agree with what my colleagues uh, have said. Of course, uh, women in the Republican Party is a good thing. In terms of the Democratic Party, as we see this polarization between rural and urban areas, you're going to have more and more people that are part of the Democratic coalition that maybe are not as represented uh, show or become part of the uh, ruling, uh, you know, representatives, and that's always a good thing. And, I, and it, every election we see this; it's a very slow process, as Aaron mentioned. But I think uh, this is going in the right direction, and that's good news. So let's end this way. Probably not good news, um, as we know. Uh, President Trump has asked. Uh, well, he says he's going to ask for a recount in Wisconsin. It hasn't officially happened yet, as we to to our knowledge. Even though uh, the former governor of Wisconsin, uh, Scott Walker, a Republican, said that doesn't really work. Um, you're not going to get anything because Wisconsin is very good at counting the ballots. Having said that, much is in flux. Um, there are more. Uh, filings before the court, potentially. Um, there's more challenges. Uh, there's a lot going on. So my question to you, political scientists, how long before you can actually certify one of these people as uh, president? You can reach the number of the Electoral College, but is that it, given all the other stuff that's going on? Aaron. Um, you know, you're pulling on my intro to American government textbook. <laughs> I'm like, oh, geez. Um, but at, at, formally, it's when the electors go and vote in January. Um, you know, uh, this isn't that di – I mean, it's crazy different, but then it's not that different. Elections are never certified till the electors vote in January. It's just usually we know it's a foregone conclusion, and we don't talk about it because it's sort of just um, the levers of government doing what government does. Um, so uh, the formal answer is that, that will be in January when the electors are, are selected based on their, you know, how the states voted uh, and sent to pull those levers. Has anything slowed down vir by virtue of court filings and or recounts? Gerald. Well, obviously, we would have to see the substance of those court filings. And if we assume that there isn't any, because there hasn't been any evidence actually presented, then the answer should be no, given what uh, Aaron just said. But I think what we have to realize here is that the official certification may not be the, the thing here, right? When, when elections are called on election night, we all assume we know what happened. And that's really the important thing for the country. So what, what Trump is doing here is delaying the country's acceptance, not the official 
actual certification necessary, but the 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 comfort level that it's over is what he's attacking, right? And to to the degree that he can keep that up even past the actual installation of the president, it's just going to make it easier for Republicans to say, you know what, this Trumpism stuff is going to help us to destroy this administration and and not let them take away all of what are you know reverse things or whatever. In other words. It, the certification result isn't necessarily the most important result. Okay. Yeah. Louise, last word. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I, I think legally it's very unlikely. Uh, Biden is now up in Pennsylvania. He just uh, uh, became, he went up in Georgia. He's up by, these are very small margins. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's unlikely that a recount would do anything or any kind of legal challenge precisely because there doesn't seem to be much evidence or basis on which you might turn those uh, numbers around. But the issue is not the legal certification, it's what Trump does with this sense of delegitimizing uh, Biden's uh, presidency. And so what really matters here is how Republicans react to, to this. Right now, it seems like the party, the senators, the representatives, most of the party right now seems to be uh, not following his lead. Uh, we'll see how that goes in the next few days if you know the news media uh, calls Pennsylvania, which would give him 270 votes um, and make president, Biden president-elect, if then they just say, let's move on, then I don't think Trump is going to be very successful um, in doing much of anything. Can I make one point that I think is really important? That you know, democracy does not require concession speech. Donald Trump has thrown out every norm. The trains are moving, and it looks like the trains are moving without him. But as vigilant as many people have been to get out the vote, to uh, make sure their friends were voting, and the way they've been paying attention, they need to do the, that, that same hypervigilance for the next 70 or so days, um, because democracy is still in peril right now. Um, the, the distinction Gerald made be between the letter of the law and the discourse battle that's about to happen here, it, it, this is the election was a precarious time for democracy, but so is this period, that um, all citizens, not just Republicans, need to say, we respect these votes. That That is so basic. It's so basic, I can't even believe it's being problematized. But this is not a time to exhale. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it. I thank you all for this conversation, uh, which is fluid even as we speak. And of course, we'll hear from you down the road when we have some more certainty about this and other issues in politics. Thank you all for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you, as always. Thank you. Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Luis Jimenez is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.